Hi, everybody. It's Richard Zucchi of the Green Peak. And joining us this week, we have Christian Sederberg, who is a founding partner of Vicente Sederberg LLP out of Colorado. Welcome aboard, Christian. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So, Christian, you know, you've been involved in the cannabis space and in the um, in the medical cannabis uh, program since 2010 as a boy, a lawyer advising companies, but also advising the governments with regards to regulatory and legislative issues. Obviously, the market's changed a lot, but why don't you tell us a bit about some of the challenges that you faced early on with the legislators and regulators and ones that you're seeing are going much smoother, but ones that continue to astound you that are every time you deal with a new jurisdiction that are causing issues? Yeah, sure. Um, well, obviously, this has been a, a wild decade for cannabis reform, starting with Colorado, which really created the first statewide medical uh-huh. regulated program. So that was uh, the legislation passed in 2010, House Bill 1284. I forget the corresponding Senate bill. I used to know it, you know, right off the top of my head, but that's how long it's been. But it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. But obviously, initial challenges with legislators just going back to those days, obviously, very important piece of legislation that came out. Um, but, you know, really the challenges then were how is this going to impact kids? How is this going to impact, uh, you know, tax base? How is this going to impact you know, our relationship with the federal government? And I would say that's probably one of the biggest ones that we've seen a lot of changes on. Even in 2010, I mean, part of the reason that the medical cannabis law in Colorado passed and, and also in other states was President Obama's campaign promises to not interfere with the relationships of medical care, you know, medical cannabis uh, caregivers and their patients, um, you know, or or really to interfere with state medical programs. There was still a lot of questions about what that was going to look like. You know, what does non-interference mean? And even in Colorado, uh, you know, in 2011, uh, the Justice Department sent letters to 50 some dispensaries that were within a thousand feet of schools uh, in Colorado saying, hey, you have 30 days to stop operations or we'll prosecute you. So, you know, it, it was a very tenuous relationship early on with the federal government. I think everybody that, went through that for a while, didn't they? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that, that's definitely changed substantially. Still, it's federally illegal to consume, sell, grow uh, cannabis, but obviously a lot, or I guess non-hemp cannabis, uh, but but uh, that relationship and the fear of prosecutions really changed. Now, and sorry if I'm skipping any part of your question, but moving to sort of the present day and the things that still, you know, kind of, you know, make make people scratch their heads that do this a lot. It's, you know, a lot of just the incredibly burdensome regulation or mm-hmm. sort of regulating this so strictly that it creates a situation where, you know, these are, these are costs, regulatory costs, you know, they're, they're similar to taxes when you have very high bars for regulation, which I think are appropriate to have high bars for regulation, but how high they should be common sense regulations, not just regulations to make it appear that we're regulating this product. So that's something that still comes up, but frankly, you know, it's just getting a, you know, a lot, there's a lot more examples to pull from a lot of yeah. states can say, Hey, look, this worked here. This didn't work there. So I think things are getting better and better, but you know, the real challenge is just the lack of federal legalization and the lack of federal clarity uh, that that creates this patchwork of regulation. And without that sort of federal overlay, uh, we're going to continue to have challenges. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, each jurisdiction learns from the previous one. And, you know, when I was using the, uh, when I was working with the government in Peru trying, and working on their legislation and then the regulatory framework, 
Colorado's rules were one of the documents that we used as a basis for things that were done right, but also wrong, and what could have been done better. And, you know, we used the Canadian rules, we used to look at Uruguay, we looked at everybody's as part of that process. When you look around at the world today, and think if you could update Colorado's rules, what would you look to? Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think that uh, you know, even as recently as this this legislative session in Massachusetts, the way that they're starting to address, I think, a little bit uh, smarter than before, issues around social equity and uh, inclusion in the industry. Uh-huh. You know, that, that's where I'd look. But obviously, every every state is different, and certainly every country is different, right? You know, so your experiences in Peru, but in Uruguay, when I was yep. working working with Uruguay, you know, they did not have a population that overwhelmingly supported medical cannabis or legal cannabis at that time. It was under 50%. Yep. And their issues were largely centered around uh, drug trafficking and narcotraficantes from, uh, you know, from in and around the, the country, you know, and, and where they... Well, they had a lot of fears about the Paraguayans using their yeah, exactly. jurisdiction yeah. as a means to reach the rest of the world, right? Yeah, exactly, where they fit geographically. So, you know, every every place is different, but I, I do think that, um, you know, Colorado got it right, but... Uh, we have what I, what I kind of refer to as blue laws, similar to what you had with alcohol, where liquor stores were allowed to sell. We're, we're, we had to be closed on Sundays in Colorado until about 20 years ago, yep. based on blue laws. So we have a lot of legacy things that I think could be, you know, probably addressed and done smarter. Um, but as I look around, uh, you know, I it's hard to sort of pick one or, or even a series of jurisdictions that I would look to. But I do think that, you know, Colorado still stands out to me as the most stable and clear regulatory system, even though, you know, the book started out this big and now it's about that big, you know, yeah. our book of regulations. And every year we have three to five cannabis legislation bills. Yeah, no, it's uh, I mean, it's a constantly evolving process. And, you know, that's not going to change anytime soon because federal legalization is still quite a ways off, no matter what anybody might hope for. But one of the areas that you know, does pop up in most jurisdictions and in the states, every state is handling it a bit different, is product testing from a safety perspective. And one of the issues that um, people have to deal with is the traditional agriculture industry, which is often surrounding the cannabis grow, is permitted to use different products and there's drift. How do you look at that affecting and coming into play over the next few years as the EPA or the FDA start looking at the industry? Yeah, and that's actually, you know, back to your previous question also, you know, what Mm -hmm. would I look to? I mean, obviously, good agricultural practices, good manufacturing practices, established processes and procedures that have existed uh, in manufacturing and agriculture for years probably would have been something that would have been helpful to look at with testing. You know, it, it's interesting if you look at how other consumer products in, in terms of food are tested. Um, you know, I think the way that we test all cannabis products for potency, but also for, uh, you know, other sort of contaminants, be it, you know, molds or remnants of uh pesticides or other things. I think there's a lot that we could take from sort of just traditional way manufacturing and agriculture is done. Yep. But without, you know, EP, the, the, the real tricky part has always been the pesticides, as I'm sure you know, and everyone has heard is just how do you use something, you know, in order to comply with regulations, you have to use something according to its label. But if its label does not allow 
use on, on, you know, they don't contemplate illegal products, you can never technically comply with the regulations. But it's also tricky because uh, when you use pesticides, you know, pesticides amounts on strawberries, which are consumed by eating versus pesticides on a smokable product. And if you look at the, the only real core, you know, something that we can look to tobacco, you know, tobacco is just generally considered not a safe product. And so mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to how, but they do have EPA labels and labeled uses, but, you know, even something where we're going to, you know, smoke a product, that's the most similar perhaps to tobacco, even that can't be fully used or that can't fully inform the consumer safety, product safety issues we're trying to address. No, absolutely. Now in Canada, what was it uh, with microbutanol? You were allowed three parts per million microbutanol on tobacco, but three parts per billion on cannabis from a smokable perspective. And, yeah. you know, some of those standards are are wildly different, not just in tobacco, but everything else. Um, but it becomes, you know, one of the things that I ran across is uh, some testing agencies used to say, well, if it's prohibited, we don't test for it. But mm-hmm. that became a question of, well, if it's just prohibited, why don't you test for it? Because the, somebody could be using it. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, right? Because part of the way that you enforce is both by knowing what you know, by testing or spot testing what's in products, mm-hmm. but also by having strong regulations at the front end, be it the Pesticide Applicators Act, which, you know, are, are laws or corollary laws, which require people who are going to apply to pesticides to either have training, be licensed, be, you know, be, be knowledgeable about what they're doing, and also record keeping. Much of the test, it's, you know, a lot of what happened in Colorado around testing uh, or around pesticides early on and violations of that were because people were required to keep pesticide logs. If you're required to keep logs, yep. but falsify those logs, that obviously is problematic. And, you know, you have to trust your regulated industry to a certain, uh, you know, to a certain amount, but it's trust, but verify. So yep. by requiring logs, by creating whistleblower type situations, and a lot of, there's a lot of whistleblowing too, because people don't want there to be harmful products. Absolutely. So, That's yeah. one of the, you know, it's the biggest, one of the big risks of the industry is it, somebody actually gets seriously injured because of, you know, one person nefarious acts, and then everybody gets crushed because you're going to have the EPA and the FDA move in prior to legalization, and yep. not, nobody's going to be in a good position. Um, We do have to take a short break, but we'll be back in a moment with Christian Sederberg, partner at Vincente Sederberg. I'm Richard Zwicky on The Green Peak. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. And we're back on The Green Peak with Christian Sederberg, with uh, Vincente Sederberg. And Christian, you know, as as you've been involved over the years, um, one of the obviously big things that's changed is there wasn't trade associations previously, but obviously they've developed. Uh, they're still under a, an oddball framework federally, but in jurisdictions internationally, they're becoming more and more prominent as a voice for the community, but also trying to help governments standardize legalization to allow the flow of product from one jurisdiction to the next. Obviously, the flow between states is not something that's going to be legally contemplated until federal legalization happens. But what are the big challenges the trade association in Colorado is looking at right now that other states are going to be following in the near term? Um, so, I mean, there's, and, and again, you know, even even with our, our medical marijuana law in 2010, 
that was driven by a trade association, but this was a, you know, state and local. So that has now expanded. The National Cannabis Industry Association has been around since, gosh, I think it was 2011 that we founded that. Um, And then more recently, you know, you had Cannabis Trade Federation, which then merged into the United States Cannabis Council. So the big issues there, obviously, that, that we're focusing on at USCC, which I'm the I was the original board chair, but now I'm the emeritus chair. Yep. Um, but the, the big issues we're focused on is obviously just trying to push through, you know, supporting any levels of reform. The the cannabis, the, you know, the CAO, the Booker Schumer Wyden package, which finally came out. Uh-huh. Now that it's out there, but doesn't have much, you know, chance as far as anyone, you know, reasonably can say in this Congress, you know, what we're going to have is hopefully a package, a, a smaller package or series of bills around banking and around other sort of, let's call them non-controversial issues, which hopefully will include some of the social equity uh, concerns that Senator Booker has raised in order to get that across the finish line. But really that, you know, these, the trade groups at the federal level are just pushing to, to normalize banking, to create, uh, you know, better situations for veterans uh, and, and make sure the veterans administration is following the policies they've laid out. But again, with, you know, obviously the, the North star is just getting to, clarity and and federal legalization but yep. you know starting with cao but then after that you know what is viable going forward in this congress for the next few months either before the election or you know after the election before the new congress is seated so that's you know those are the big issues that that we're talking about you know there is nuance when we look at the cao and we did a, you know everyone did their analysis there's some people in the industry that really want there to be interstate com- interstate commerce as quickly uh-huh. as possible there's others that would prefer that that uh you know take that there be a transition so as to not disrupt state markets i don't think anyone is realistically thinking that it's going to never be interstate commerce but you know then there's the international commerce issue too which obviously affects the canadian lps and other countries but uh, again these are all sort of they're nice to talk about, but like you said, with the reality being that we're not going to see federal legalization anytime soon, we have to focus on what's practical. And then a lot of, obviously a lot of this comes back to the states and and state issues. It does come back to the state and state issues. And there's also going to be the question of states can create interstate barriers based on requirements that Mm -hmm. even if federal legalization happens, it can still, you know, there still will be barriers because some states are going to want to protect their grows, even though the grow isn't economically viable vis-a-vis the other states around it. Yep. And those barriers are going to, you know, are going to take a long time to fall. Just like, you know, you mentioned uh, some of the banking acts and safe bankings, you know, they've tried to bury it inside of other bills to get it passed. And unfortunately, every time it gets called out and we don't quite get there. And it's a nightmare for everybody. Um but, you know, in each of the states, the um, the local banks, the state banks have been able to step in, but we're still missing a big gap. And one of the, you know, it's a tax gap. It's a uh, gap in terms of civil equity and community equity. It's a gap in every level. And the members of the business community in the cannabis industry tend to be very proactive in terms of reaching out and helping others. Um, with regards to some of that activity and the like, how how do you think the com- the community could really influence government officials more effectively in this space? Because people have tried over and over, and there's a majority of states that have legalized, but we can't get the federal government to change. What's what gives? Oh man! Well, uh, <laughs> a, a big part of the problem is politics. 
Yeah. And, you know, again, it's strange when you're talking about, you know, hoping to get some modest reforms through and the politics on both the left and the right and everything in the middle, um, you know, are that uh, there's a there's a big divide and hopefully it's becoming less of a divide because I don't think it's a, a real divide, even on on the sort of more reform minded people of what reform looks like. And is it, you know, so we can't move forward with modest reform or incremental reform because that would leave the potential for, uh, you know, removing from schedule one and all of the harms caused by the drug war. If Uh we don't address those, why should we address the industry concerns or the business concerns? So I think we need to be more effective at communicating, uh, you know, as we have been with Senator Booker's office and others. And by we, I mean the Royal we, right? People that have been reaching out saying, you know, look, you know, big companies have bank accounts. It's not big companies that don't have bank accounts. And, you know, changing the people's minds that that believe that the industry only cares about money and that it's you know, not good for their business to focus on these social justice, criminal justice reform issues. When in reality, it is really good for their business, even if you can't try a direct line for them to continue to support reform and to continue to destigmatize cannabis and cannabis users. So I think a lot of it comes down to how do we, you know, how, how do we as an industry also interact with the advocacy organizations in a more effective way, but also just the politics of U.S. politics, right? So when you need 60 votes in the Senate, yep. right, and you also have all sorts of parliamentary procedures and, and other things that, that can be used, and it's very difficult to get any legislation done. And look, even though, you know, where I don't know where people fall on the big package that was just, you know, passed with the Senate this weekend, which Senator Manchin championed. Yep. When you have something like that, where a big package comes through and it's seen as bipartisan, it's seen as a win for the president and the Democrats coming up to uh, the midterm elections here in the United States. What you have is actually a disincentive, unfortunately, hopefully it doesn't become reality, but a disincentive to continue to do more bipartisan things right before an election. It's And it's nuts because people put their, you know, their own electoral hopes ahead of what's good for the country. And that, yeah. that's horrible everywhere. I mean, uh, people yeah. are elected to be the representatives, not to uh, to have a continued job because they do what their party says. Right. I mean, you see it again. I'm not making a political statement for Democrats or anything else, but you see it in the recent jobs report, right, Uh where the Republicans would really like Americans to believe that we're in a recession, that the economy is falling apart. We beat the jobs. You know, the jobs report gets beaten by hundreds of thousands of jobs. And the, the crawl on Fox News says, you know, Biden administration, you know, severely off on jobs report prediction. Yeah, as a, you know, like, and so that, and again, I'm not making a political comment because both sides do this kind of stuff. But when you have a political environment where there is not necessarily alignment of getting things done, contrary to what both sides of the aisle say, and frankly, when it comes to cannabis, when you have a president that has really not stepped up on this issue, has not prioritized it, and has not done much to help push this reform package from the beginning, or to push cannabis reform more generally. Um, it's you know it creates a very difficult political environment. It does create a difficult political environment, but unfortunately, with Biden, it really shouldn't be a surprise, despite what everybody attributed to him in terms of believing or saying you know they, what he thought he would do based on his personal history and you know and mm-hmm. based on you know his age and group and perspective. And it's just different. But exactly. you know, I'm happy to make political statements because I get to do that, and I just I just. I'm constantly in shock with regards to how we try, are trying to talk ourselves into a recession 
when the reality is there's jobs, the economy is going well, people are spending money, and we're just dealing with a short-term supply chain issue that, you know, is a result of the pandemic and a bunch of other things that are happening outside of, you know, our own control. And it's happening to a lot of countries around the world, but everybody's growing. And it's, uh, I think, you know, we might see a minor increase in interest rates again, but then we're going to see it all coming down and everybody's going to wonder what the hell happened here for a couple of months. But I shouldn't go on a rant because it's your time, but we do have to take one more short break with Christian Cedarberg, who's a partner with Vicente Cedarberg out of Colorado. We'll be back on the Green Peak in a second. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. And we're back on the Green Peak with Christian Cedarberg with out of uh, Colorado partner. It's Vincente uh, Cedarberg and Christian. You know, you've been involved in the association, building it up nationally. You've been involved in helping draft the various laws and regulatory framework with a mind's eye or an eye towards what governments need and also what the industry needs. As you're looking at the next three to five years, understanding that legalization is unlikely from a federal perspective in this period. And even if it were to pass, it's going to take, you know, two years after it passes for all the regulatory framework to really come into play. What are the big things you try and advise uh, states about that really they need to be looking at with regards to when this happens? Because a lot of them think our rules are the best and every, and then the feds are going to follow our rules because we're ahead of the cycle. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to, when I talk to states about it, or in particular here in Colorado, I want to make, you know, I want to, even if it might take three to five years, and who knows, you never know, you know, you never really know what's going to happen, I guess I would say. Yep. Um, things can change quickly, but uh, I advise states that they really need to think about, you know, how does their state compete in a post-federal legalization world? Um, what, you know, what are you doing to make sure that your rules don't become something that are open to legal challenge. You mentioned earlier, interstate commerce and states wanting to protect, you know, their businesses. There's pretty significant constitutional limitations on what they can do to simply protect their domestic businesses. So they need to look at the laws that were not written for that purpose, but might have that effect and understand that those could be challenged and it might be an open and shut you know, loss in court because some of the stuff is pretty clear. So mm-hmm. also, how do you do, how do you address your taxes? How do, if you, you know, if you want to be a net exporter and, you know, look, I'm not advising California or Oregon. There's a lot of smart people there. Um, I, I focus a lot on Colorado and other places, but if you want to be a net exporter, which California and Oregon certainly have been very open about. And they're well positioned. Um, yeah, what, what are you doing? Like what, look at California and Oregon. They've, they've looked at interstate commerce, but also how are you addressing your tax code to, to actually think about the price of cannabis? Don't, are you making the wrong assumptions about the price of cannabis when you're estimating what taxes, you know, you're going to bring in? Obviously costs, the cost of a pound of, of wholesale cannabis in Colorado right now is the lowest, you know, some of the lowest prices we've ever seen mm-hmm. because the production's efficient. Uh, you know, there's there's certain limitations on how much people can cultivate, but those are not, you know, very strict like some other states. Um, so, you know, it's, it's look at, as you're addressing these things, are you building a system that both works for what you need right now, but also is is open to or thinking about what can happen when federal law changes? Yeah. And, I'm, you know, in Canada, one of the most stupid things the federal government did with regards to legalization was uh, put in a minimum one dollar gram or 10% tax on uh, on any cannabis sold through the legal channels. And all that did was it drove people to the black markets. 
yeah. governments just, you know, they look at it in terms of a revenue stream, but don't take a step back and say, but what happens? And yeah. you're going to delay the conversion from black to gray to white every time you create barriers, which force consumers to cheaper sources. Absolutely. And, you know, that's, that's one that's, that's obviously been a struggle everywhere mm-hmm. that has happened. And, you know, obviously when you have limited outlets, you know, you got to be thoughtful about, obviously we understand why some states want to put, you know, sort of limitations on the number of operators um, or, you know, some people leave it up to local governments. That's what Colorado does. Um, but when you have a, a situation where, you know, there's limited access points, you're going to have the same issues with the, the black and gray markets as well. So, you know, these are complicated issues. How do you, how do you do it right? You know, again, it's, it's really challenging without some federal oversight because, you know, of, cannabis, you know, still flowing around the country, even, you know, regardless of whether or not we have state regulated systems, but it's flowing differently. And if you look at how the alcohol, tobacco, you know, ATF, how they kind of help and support states in enforcing their state laws. And that's, you know, cigarettes get smuggled all the time because of the differential tax rates, et cetera. Yep. So you know, we could really use the federal government's help, you know, on some of these things. Yeah. And, you know, one thing you touched on earlier was just the, the limited licenses. And of course, in California, that's been a bit of an issue or was a bit of an issue because they, ish, they issued 500 licenses initially for 5,000 applicants. Those mm-hmm. 5,000, the other 4,500 who didn't get the licenses still continued to grow. Right. Right. So <laughs> There's, they, they didn't say, oh, well, I'm just going to pack up shop. I guess I didn't, you know. So yep. how do you, yeah. yeah, how do you transition those markets? And then also, you know, for me, I, I, I think it's very important to think about how do you make sure that, you know, innovation, uh, you know, how do you let small businesses into the market? You know, obviously you look at the craft beer industry. Yep. A lot of those folks start by brewing beer in their garage. You know, there's a lot of cannabis cultivators that if they had access to farmers markets or those types of things or small cultivation yep. or, you know, kind of those unique licenses. And those are, by the way, that, you know, with smaller batch typically comes higher it's not necessarily comes higher quality, but it's hard to have huge batches with the same quality that you get with someone that takes the time and for to default, you know, to really do it on a craft basis. And with niche and specialty products, just as in every other sector, and it takes a while. And that's part of, you know, how the industry grows and develops yep. uh, is allowing that to flourish and happen to an experimentation from one of a better term in terms of market demand yep. to drive the growth over time. Christian, um, I'd like to thank you for joining us on the Green Peak this week. It's been a great conversation. I hope we're going to have you back again. Anytime. And it's my pleasure and keep up the good work and really appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks, Christian. And thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be, um, but people who do want to reach out to you and learn more, mm-hmm. how, should they, uh, how should they approach you? Um, you our website, www.vicentecederberg.com, but also um, my email, I can make it available to you. Um, but it's Christian at VicenteCederberg.com. Fantastic. Thanks, Christian. And thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back again with you next week on The Green Peak. I'm Richard Zwicky. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.